attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guest on the podcast, Lou Mager. Lou Mager, who I believe holds the record for the longest break between staff years, uh, Returned to the Camp Ojibwa staff this past summer uh, and brought with him a lot of fun. Uh, the kids really dug him. He lived in cabin 14 with us. He was, um, you'll hear all about that. Uh, we had a great time talking about things and Lou's a really, uh, really sweet guy. I'd seen his name on the walls, on the plaques for years. Of course, you know, they're just names on plaques. You, you don't necessarily know you're going to bump into those guys. And all of a sudden, uh, one summer he shows up with the boys this summer. And next thing you know, well, again, you'll hear it all in the interview. I guess I shouldn't steal the thunder from my own show. Before we get to that, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, first and foremost, you, you're getting killed with it already, I know, but May 6th and 7th, if it's not on your calendar, put it there now. Put it into your iPhone calendar. Uh, OJ90, it's going to be the best. It's going to be the best collection of OJ people ever, and you're not going to want to miss it. In fact, if you do miss it, it's going to be terrible. You're going to be sitting around going, man, I can't believe I missed it. That guy was telling me for months on his podcast about when to put it in my calendar. I totally forgot. So don't make that mistake. Be the first one in your block to be there and ready to go at OJ90. And of course, if you have not picked up your commemorative brick, uh, Camp Ojibwa History Project bricks are available for the holidays. Swing by the Camp Ojibwa History Project site at campojibwahistory.org. Click on buy my commemorative brick. You'll be good to go. Okay, enough of that. Here we go. Lou Maker on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. First and foremost, please state your name and years at camp. Lou Mager, 1964 to 1973, and then a long break, and now 2013 to the present. I think it's safe to say that you have the longest break, especially longest break while returning as a staff man. Yeah, somebody mentioned that uh, the other night, that uh, probably no one has done what I've done. Certainly. How did you come to hear about Ojibwa? I was a student at Northwestern. I was finishing my freshman year, and I uh, went to the music school, and there was a bulletin board with a little 3 by 5 card, nicely typed by Dennis Rosen, I believe, and it said, uh, we need a piano player at a camp for boys in northern Wisconsin. And I don't think it had the salary on there. <laughs> but uh, I thought, well, I'm not doing anything this summer, and I'm I like camp, so I think I'll uh, try try this. So I called the number and talked to Denny, and 
he uh, suggested that I have an interview with Alan Pearl. Mm. So they came to the uh, the uh, music school, and we went up to one of the practice rooms, and they asked me if I would just play for them. They asked if I knew any fight songs, college fight songs. Sure. And as it happened, I was the accompanist for the men's glee club at Northwestern at that time, and there was an arrangement of the Big Ten fight songs that I had learned. Mm. So I knew, and at and that time, the Collegiate Week, I believe, was Big Ten fight songs. Right, primarily all Big Ten. And so I played a few of those, and they thought, well, good, you know those. <laughs> and then Pearl said, well, uh, do you know I left my heart in San Francisco? <laughs> and so I said, sure, and I played that, and they hired me. Nice. Then... I spoke to, I probably spoke to Denny again, uh, just to talk about this and that. And then one of the staff members, and I can't remember his name, but he was a, a Northwestern student also. Mm. And he called me and asked me if I had any questions. And he cleared up the, uh, the my one question about, do I really need to bring a clown costume? Because... <laughs> they would. They sent out the list of what to bring sure. for the kids, mm -hmm. and they just sit, did the same thing for the staff. He assured me that that wasn't <laughs> necessary, um, which was good. <laughs> it's funny you say that because um, I started here as the theater guy, right. and I also got a list, but it was a list for the kids. Right. But it was not clear that it wasn't a list for me. Right. So I'm like, why do I have to sell my name into all my clothes? <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> do I have to pay someone to do that? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I took the, uh, I signed up, took the train uh, to Eagle River, mm. which was a nice adventure, and got up here and uh, called camp, as I was asked to do on the payphone there, and then sat and waited for two hours. Wow. Until somebody picked me up. Wow. And I couldn't move because then that they wouldn't. They wouldn't know, you know. Right. I couldn't, so I couldn't look look around Eagle River or anything like that. So I sat on that bench in front of the train station, which I probably think is still there, <laughs> and uh, waited and waited and waited. Pretty soon, here came the camp station wagon, mm. and who should be there but Molly and Henry Baum picking me up? So now I'd only met people who were, in my view, old. And I thought, oh my lord, is this going to be an old person? I mean, what, <laughs> what is this going to be? So we came to camp, um, and Pearl took me right to the kitchen and fed me. Mm. And that was very nice. She gave me some pie and some milk, and then we went in the counselor's lodge and met people. And then I believe Harvey Weinberg took me around to the cabins and asked me to meet the um, the rest of the people. And I was in cabin four that year, and George Kerman was in cabin five. Mm. And we were both there early. No one else was in either cabin. Okay. And I remember as I was finally ready for bed and and sort of looked over next to me, and there was George, and I sort of gave a weak little wave, like, hi, here I am. And I wondered at the time, I wonder if we'll ever be friends. 
<laughs> and of course, <laughs> of course, now that we're we've been dear friends for this man, these many years, and we come up uh, with the I come up with the old timers um, also, um, the boys of summer. And George is my uh, my he's he sleeps right next to me, and we laugh about those times mm. uh, because, of course, we're not only friends but best friends. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Let's go back a step, though. Let's talk about where are you from? Oh, I'm from Auburn, Nebraska. Auburn, Nebraska. And how does a young man in Nebraska uh, tell us about growing up a little bit? Obviously, you had a little interest in music. Right. I started uh, when I was a child at um, probably the age of six, I think I started playing the piano. Mm. And we we got a piano. Uh, We didn't have one. My grandparents both had uh, pianos. Uh, both sets of grandparents, and then I begged for for a piano. I really wanted a piano because I assumed that once you got the piano, that the ability to play the piano came with <laughs> right. the purchase of the piano. Sure, that, that makes sense. You know. And my mom was a piano teacher, and um, she wisely sent me off to somebody else mm. in town to uh, to, to uh, take piano lessons from. And I did nothing else. I was Mr. Piano. I played mm. piano all the time. I would get up early in the morning and play, learning songs. And it wasn't too long before my music teacher discovered that I could play by ear. Mm. Um, and that, and she did her best, and she was wonderful. Her name was Ines Steinheider. And she, Ines, was the church organist at the mm. Methodist Church. And she and I uh, became good friends and I would look forward to piano lessons. I wasn't like other kids. I would, you know, practice all the time and show off when I got to her house. And one day I decided to show her that I could play Silent Night all by myself that I had learned just by plunking it out on the piano. And she responded by saying, well, that's very nice, little Louie. Um, now, can you play it in another key? <laughs> And I had no idea what she meant, but then she showed me a little bit, and then the world opened up. Mm. So I would be thinking, if we would go on a family trip, I would be thinking about piano and be thinking about how I would play a certain song or play various licks that I would have heard on television mm. that probably Liberace played sure. or that uh, some other pianists uh, had played. And so I was, I was, uh, I was into it. And I took lessons from her um, until I was uh, ready to go to college. When I uh, turned 10, I believe, or 9, she said that my legs were now long enough that I could reach the pedals of the organ so I could start learning organ. Mm. And then right away I started playing for church and uh, played, and I gave my first piano organ recital when I was 10. Wow. And um, the town turned out. Uh, it was a wonderful event, and uh, I got publicity stills taken. And I look at them now, and somebody said that they they see in that face. I know what I'm meant to do. Mm. So I went to Northwestern as a piano uh, uh, student, and then once I realized that there were a lot of people that were a lot better than me, mm. I. Th- uh, kept playing, and I enjoyed playing, but I also wanted to conduct. Hmm. 
So I made took every advantage of uh, that was there at Northwestern, which were a lot of advantages. And I took every advantage to uh, conduct, and eventually got a conducting. Well, I, there wasn't a conducting degree. I got a music education degree. I also knew that I wanted to teach. Mm. So I graduated. I took a year or two uh, as a, a postgraduate uh, doing some work and then got my master's later on in conducting. But in the meantime, I uh, started teaching and I taught at Avoca Junior High School for a couple years and then at Niles North High School for three years before going back and getting my master's. And all that time, I was still going to Camp Ojibwa mm. during the summers. Perfect. Um, and uh, got to know all the guys and the, uh, the, my fellow counselors and uh, spent a lot of time with them because, you know, there we were in Chicago. And so I had an instant uh, group of friends that were different from my Northwestern friends. Sure. Which was nice. Yeah. So coming up those first couple of years, tell us a little bit about what camp, what's camp like in that time period? What a, What's a camp day look like in that time period? Ah, that's a good question. For you, specifically. For me. Mm -hmm. Well, I was a counselor. And also, I was uh, a musician, and so I was the pianist. Were you also coaching teams or anything like that? Uh, only under duress. There were, there were a couple times <laughs> that Denny said, I want you to do something. I can't even remember something. I said, I can't do that. But I could. Uh, I was a canoe guy, so okay. I, I would teach canoeing and and, and uh, work at the waterfront. Um, but no, no, I wasn't really an athlete of that kind. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the first, one of the first people I met was Lou Fletcher, who also opened up a whole, a whole vista of uh, musical experiences. Mm. He was a year older. Uh, he was the camp bugler. Um, he was an incredibly good musician and much better than I at certain things. He played the piano. He didn't play the piano as well as I, but he, he certainly was a wonderful... Um, he had a wonderful ear for music. Mm. And that was at the time when we had just... The camp had just stopped doing a minstrel show and was now trying to figure out what else to do. Right. So the Jubilee was born, and I believe I was the second, 64 was the second year of the Jubilee. So they'd had a little experience uh, trying to do something different. But basically it was a minstrel show, I mean it was a, yeah, a minstrel show without blackface and without the end men. But there were staff in it, and there were the campers, and there was the Ojibwe singers, and there was the chorus, and there was a whole group of actors that would do little skits. Mm. So um, we spent our days transcribing music from records. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and that's something that I had never done. I'd taken um, ear training, and we had to do a little bit of that in, in college, but... This would be taking uh, the score or the record of Hello, Dolly, for instance, and listening over and over and over and over to it and writing down the orchestration, writing down, uh, turning that into a piano part for me. Um, 
It was something that I was asked a couple years ago, um, and I did a college uh, uh, gig with uh, at one of the colleges in Seattle, where I live now. And they said, "What are the skills that you look back on and think that was really that really helped you the most? That really turned your life around." One of them was learning to type. I'm really glad that I learned to type when I was in seventh grade because, you know, computers and typing and all this. Um, But the other was working with Fletch and just sitting down and with a score, with a music paper and a pencil and writing what we heard down. And that's not easy. Mm. Um, I can do it very easily now, but at the time, I was... I would... I was one of those kids that would listen to commercials on radio, on television, and then go play them. But I would play a sort of simplified version of them. I would hear, I remember I heard uh, the dragnet. Sure. And I would play that as a joke, you know, in, in school and make people laugh. And But it was only later on that I realized that I was playing the wrong chords and I really hadn't hadn't paid attention to it. I, I, I hadn't developed my ear enough to really hear what was actually mm. going on. And it was because of Fletch that that uh, I learned how to do that. That's amazing. I mean, to me, that's I, I feel like I could, I could program the rocket ship that takes you to the moon easier than I could do what you're describing. Right, right, right. It's a real skill. Yeah. And you have to have talent to do it. But um, it's you can go beyond just having talent and being sort of sloppy about it and being really precise and that's what he was he was he was a really hard worker mm. and the kind that who would stay up you know late into the evening working on this stuff and then uh, trying out the next day and he would be in the lodge uh, playing the piano there and trying to get those those exact notes that the violins played in the overture of, of whatever we were we wow. were doing we did a lot of broadway shows um, and they would be the current broadway shows so the uh, you know i suppose at that time that there were scores uh, um, full scores that you could get, but we didn't need those because right. we would just listen to the record and copy it down and and learn it. Um, when Paul James came on the scene, then we could play two pianos. Mm. I mean, uh, four hands at one piano. So uh, we would we would make the the arrangements harder and more complete. Yeah, um, and that was really nice. Then. Fletch also was a very good string bass player. Mm. So he would conduct and play string bass, and George Kerman, once again, would be the drummer. Okay. And uh, so we had a nice little combo going for the for the shows. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then, you know, we got to know each other, too, and I got to know Fletch and his family, and they were from Peoria. And so I would spend a lot of time with him and his mom and dad. They were great people. And it was, uh, that's, that was my day. Uh, I, I didn't do much else. Uh, I would, you know, go swimming and, and uh, 
be, be a counselor. I was right. a counselor in sure. cabin. I started in cabin four, and I don't know what the other cabins I was in. I remember I was in eight one year. Um, <clears throat> but so, so Fletcher is here. Was he? He was here before you. One year. Before one year me. before you. And then is Dale Fisk still? Dale there? Fisk had left. He'd, oh, I see. I think I was his replacement, probably. Gotcha. Um, but he was. Uh, yeah, Fletch was really brilliant. He was just mm-hmm. brilliant. Also, I mean, he played the trumpet like an angel, and so we would get uh, we would get the the bugle calls were really phenomenal. Yeah. Just to, he would wake up in the morning, <clears throat> take a shower, and then play Reveille as fast as he could. <laughs> and you would you would bound out of bed, you know. Yeah, it can never be overstated how lucky Camp was to have this stretch of musicians. Uh, again, as I've said a million times, you know we're a sports camp. It's not necessarily right. the thing we're out looking for, but to have this stretch of incredibly talented musicians who can make who can make things out of thin air. It's one thing to have a really great piano player. It's another thing to have the kind of talents and tools in your belt that takes a group of kids who aren't necessarily interested in being on the stage and can on the fly do the things that are going to entice them to be on the stage. And that's what you guys have. Well, uh, that's true. Um, However, there was a long tradition of of the minstrel shows, of uh, performing. So it was a... Perk to be to to be in the jubilee, um, and people tried out for the for the. We didn't have to convince anybody. They mm-hmm. tried out for the uh, Ojibwe singers. They tried out for the chorus, and I think the chorus probably had I don't know, thirty kids in it, and the singers had maybe twenty or sixteen or twenty, and and that's when camp had one fifty right about right one fifty yeah. to one eighty. Um, so, so that was a very, it was a very nice situation. Mm. I wasn't totally in charge. I had somebody as a mentor who was also a good friend. And then add Paul James, and it was a wealth of musicianship and of leadership for these shows. And Paul was very, very adept at copying down music, too, and, and he had a great ear. And plus, he was a wonderful pianist, and also he could play other instruments. Um, mm. So, yeah, it was it was a great team. Yeah. Now, outside of the the musicians who are there right then, who else is sort of involved with any of the showmanship that's going on at camp? Sandy Marovitz. Sandy would be one of the guys that wrote the minstrel show. Mm. He had a real sense of theater. And he was very funny, and so he, he, the four of us, I would say, would put together the shows. Um, Elliot uh, Friedman was also uh, heavily involved. For one thing, he had the record player <laughs> that <laughs> we would <laughs> we would use, and and he, I think he probably got the records. Yeah. Um, to to do all this stuff, we it was I don't know how long the shows were. Maybe 45 minutes at that time. Of course, they were in the evening. Right. In the rec hall. And the uh, visiting weekend ended at the end of the show. So pretty much everybody went to the show. Mm-hmm. And Pearl and Molly were in charge of, of makeup. And there were <laughs> sure. costumes. And uh, the kids... Uh, the kids got, got into it. Mm-hmm. They were... Uh, they were... It was... 
a, not you wouldn't call it a professional quality, but it was the attitude was professional, which was a very nice thing. Yeah. And I, I, we certainly have uh, some photos from some of those jubilees up on right. the org website. Feel free to stop by and check those out. Uh, but one thing I always see, there's always uh, girly numbers. That's a thing that we oh, sort right. of shied away from right. in the later years. But we put a few guys in some wigs and, right. and maybe pantyhose and <laughs> trots them across the stage. We did. Um, but we also uh, used uh, uh, Karen uh, Schwartz. Oh, right. Of course. When she was very little. Um, we had a kid singing, you're my best girl and nothing you do is wrong to her mm. on stage. And so we actually had a real, a real girl, <laughs> but the, yeah, the boys, especially some of the cuter boys look great in yeah, drag. Of course. You know? And, uh, they somehow didn't mind do it, doing it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Karen, Karen got a lot of uses props from what I hear. I mean, I know she was kidnapped once in a powwow. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. She was the, uh, the sweetheart, the camp sweetheart. Yeah. So outside of, outside of the sort of uh, theatrical side, who are the other guys who you end up being close friends with? Oh, gosh. There was one fellow, uh, Jeff Stern, that uh, I became good friends with. Um, of course, they were all, all the guys that I was close to were also interested in in the theater. Mm -hmm. the, the sure, theater right. of course. Bernie Kerman was another, um, and we, you know, we sang all the time. We loved singing. Uh, of course, there was mess hall singing all the time. There was a piano in the mess hall. There, the uh, the waiters would finish, and we would sing. And if it was raining, we'd sing a lot. Mm. And we sang mostly fight songs. So by the time Collegiate Week rolled around, everybody knew all the songs. Uh, Ohio was the most popular, the fight, that team okay. across. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, and it's a really strong, strong, strong piece. Um, I never got to see that because I was facing the other way. I was facing the wall. <laughs> so now that we have a, a little piano that we can turn around and and uh, face the kids that's a lot more fun for me but we did a lot of singing and um you know we all it was we were i guess um we got a lot of respect mm. from the rest of the camp even though they weren't necessarily musically inclined they appreciated the fact that that camp had hired three guys who were very musically inclined and yeah. really good at what they did. Well, I can, I can say I've certainly talked to a lot of guys from that era and unquestionably one of, if not all three of you guys will get mentioned in every one of those conversations. Really? Yeah. I mean, you, there was a, there was an impact that was made yeah. for sure throughout that whole time period. And even in some, you know, in some cases it was just simply, I would have never gotten on the stage or I would have never sang if it hadn't been for those guys. And for other people, it, changed their life. It showed them a, a thing that they had never really considered about themselves. Right. So right. I think you guys were a huge impact. I guess we were. Uh, you don't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Nachman was also uh, a great friend. And he and his brother Jim had, had an incredible ability to remember lyrics to songs. They just have this mind. And, and they, they, could, they could just spout off lyrics you mm -hmm. know they were and and uh sing songs um 
As a matter of fact, Bob and I then became um, really good friends and cohorts and did something that at the time we was illegal at camp. And uh, even though we've a lot of people know about it, it might be nice to mention it now. Uh, I was one of the, I was never a collegiate week coach mm. because what I did, and this was after Fletch had left, uh, Paul was still around. What I, what I was supposed to do was help each team with their songs and with their stunts and help them with the musical portion of that. Sure. We had exhausted the Big Ten songs. And we were tired of them. And so people started, I think the coaches maybe were involved in selecting colleges. Let's do Harvard. Right. Or let's do USC. So we had to scramble. We had a little book that had all the fight songs in it. So we had to scramble. And People don't realize that when, you, when we switch teams out of Collegiate Week, one of the hardest things to deal with is coming up with their songs, getting right. sheet music or, or some sort of music for their songs. That's I mean, right. You guys had a little bit of benefit because maybe if you could get a recording of it, you could right. do some transcribing. But in general, yeah. that's one of the first things we think about when we put a new week, week team in. Yeah, what's the song and how do you get it? And no, of course, now you can get it on the internet. But at the time, uh, Bob was tired of the all the songs and all the teams. I was tired of all the teams. And he was a coach. So one of us suggested that we write something. And we decided to pick a team that nobody would have heard of. Fair enough. And write, make up the songs. Because we figured we'd heard enough college fight songs and alma maters that we could make up our own. We were we could do that. We decided we would never tell anyone because that would have been that was giving him an advantage in a way. Sure. Because the musician was helping his team a little bit more. But, you know, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, we picked the University of um, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, mm. and started writing. And it took us a little while, uh, as writing music and writing song uh, lyrics do. But he was so good at writing lyrics, and I had you know, fight songs are so generic that. Uh, but we really liked the Princeton fight song. Okay, um, and it starts. And we will fight right through that line of blue. So I wrote. I said, "Let's." That has a nice. That has a nice chord. It's a five chord that starts instead of a one chord that starts the piece, and it's just a nice feeling to get into it. So we kept that structure, and instead of doing la da da dum, we did la da da dum. So sure. Right? And uh, we came up with a fight song. And an alma mater. Now, in order to do that, we had to come up with colors. Of course, um, of course. We had to come up with uh, campus landmarks. Mm. Um, the 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 mascot. Certainly, certainly. So you we made, made all that stuff up. All of it. from thin air. From comes thin air. The University of Massachusetts, right at, at Amherst. Amherst. 
UMass. If you will. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we, <laughs> we tried it out. We introduced it. We wrote it down and made up the fact that it was written in Ot 6. We thought that would be good. It was nice. And we told Al and Pearl and the powers that be, Danny and, and Mickey, that uh, we had discovered, we found the music. Well, it became the popular fight song. Mm. Um, it was fun to sing. It was uh, tuneful. The lyrics were great. And it took over the popularity contest from Ohio. <laughs> and we were a little bit um, cautious then because we thought, hmm. You get a little too much press, a little too yeah, much Yeah, yeah. The, the spotlight is hot. Right. Now, what were the things that would make you nervous about being about people like inspecting your song and sort of inspecting these? Was it so simply that you made it up? I mean, give me some aspects about the songs that made them enticing. I don't know what caught it. What caught it. Mm. Um, it but it, it worked. It just worked. And in the mess hall, you know, people will want to sing that song. Now, this is way, this is previous to Collegiate Week, <coughs> at least a week before Collegiate Week. Oh, I see. So it's already in, it's just in the rotation. So on it's the in the rotation. And everything. So you're starting to get there. Now, you said you made up a lot of the things about the team. What were the, what were the team's colors? Uh, yellow and brown. I see. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and the, the, they were the Cougars. We decided okay. they were the Cougars. Okay. And the campus landmarks were Bailey's Tower. Oh, sure. I, I think I've been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Cranner's Creek. Oh, why not? <laughs> where you would go and contemplate. I see. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bailey's Tower, of course, you'd climb up on the last night of school every year. Right, and right. right and right. Uh, Cranner's Creek, uh, where, you'd, uh, gl where glistening wavelets herald the day. Oh, Wow, that is alma mater-esque if I've yeah, ever heard I it. I know, Bob was <laughs> brilliant at this. Now this yellow... Loyalty and sacred honor through the coming days Pledge we now to alma mater whom we humbly praise Memories forever linger Though our steps may wander far from you, O Massachusetts, and thy tender gaze. Hours spent in silence at Cranner's Creek at dawn, where glistening wavelets herald the that soon fade away have knit our hearts to thee forever though the years may pass and we will ever cherish thoughts of you you man and Bob was a great coach too he was a wonderful, he is a wonderful man. He's very articulate. He's, um, he's 
brilliant. He's, he reads voraciously. Uh, he, he, last time I, he comes and visits me every year because he comes out to Washington and hikes. So he spends a couple of days with me, and we sing the song, you know. And um, but but he, you know, he, he's always questioning me. What what books have you read? Now, did you read this poem in the New Yorker? Because you know, I mean, he's <laughs> he's still into it. Uh, so, but he and also at night, he would read to the kids. His cabins were always quiet mm. because at night he would finish his, read another story to them. And they looked forward to that, and they got a lot of sleep, as a matter of fact. Mm. Bob and I um, worked on the song together. Then I helped him in my official capacity as, uh, as the coach right. of, the, of the songs. So at the time, song night winners were not announced until right at the end so that nobody knew who won song night sure <laughs> and then they announced who won song night and i was one of the, i was the guy who did the uh, the announcements on the piano he won he won <laughs> song night <laughs> and we looked at each other like uh-oh cuz he was way up on one of the leading. Sure. And then he won the week. <laughs> wow. And we both just, uh, we were happy, but we thought, oh my God, this is horrible. <laughs> we cheated and we won. You cheated and you won. So there was Falderall, you know, hooray and all this. And then he and I, beat it out to one of the campsites and talked about it. And we decided we would never tell anybody. And it wasn't until post-season that year that I told somebody. I told <laughs> That's a Mickey, pretty good run. <laughs> I told Mickey Schwartz. <laughs> so never tell anyone lasted roughly three weeks. <laughs> three weeks. And Mickey said, I wondered about that. <laughs> because we had a line in it... Uh, we're the team that can cream both the East and the West. <laughs> he said, nobody would have said that in 1906. <laughs> so it was already suspicious. Sure. And then eventually we let people know that uh, we had done it. Um, I still sing it to people. My, my church choir, uh, I sang it to them, and they couldn't believe it. You know that We were afraid that somebody would you know, get a yellow and brown outfit and a sweater and look for Bailey's Tower when they got sure, to, of course. to UMass. Um, it, it, I think their colors are red and white, and they're the Minutemen. Oh, yes, certainly. I have a little <laughs> bit of history with UMass. Uh, oh, you as do? A, as a, not, I didn't go there or anything, but as a University of Kentucky fan, there was a, a year in 1996 when our college basketball team was very good, and the only team who beat us was UMass, and uh -huh. coached by John Calipari, who is now our coach, but that's another story for another time. And then in the NCAA tournament, we got to play them in the semifinals and kill them, and that was really the biggest game of the tournament. By the right. time we the final was not a game at all, but it was really that was the big game. So that is why UMass always is a place in my heart, and they, it's a bad place. It's just <laughs> just above Duke. So. Yeah. Um, 
So you wrap up that you're there, and then throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, are you in touch? You're in touch with your friends and stuff, but are you in touch with camp? Do you come back and visit it at all? No. Once I moved to California, it sort of went away. It's I was far. doing something else. It's a schlep. <laughs> On top of the fact that you're busy. <laughs> right. And I would come back to uh, Chicago to visit mm. friends, um, but I really didn't have any desire to come back to camp. It was That was that part of my life. Yeah. And um, a couple people kept in touch. Elliot came to visit once, and who else came to visit me? Uh, Mike Bagan came to visit me in California, and... Ned Zalek came to visit me, although neither of us can remember the visit. <laughs> but it was the 70s. Uh, we, uh, let's see. Oh, and then I became friends here with Ken Roffey mm. because we were compatible, we liked each other, and we also had a similar job. We were, at one point, the camp shopper. Ah, a position that we both adored. Certainly. It is an illustrious position. I know. Um, Mostly because we got to spend time with Al. Mm. We'd go on visits with Al. Yeah. Um, We needed a curtain for the, for the rec hall. And so we went with Al and we found somebody to make the curtain for $500. And, and he would, he would send me into town for, a lug of potatoes, and I didn't know what a lug was, and he for a, a flat of potato chips, and a hank of rope, <laughs> and a cocoa mat. He said, "We need a cocoa mat." And I said, "What's a cocoa mat?" And he loved that he could tell me these things. Sure. He told me, and he told Kenny also the, his history with camp. We would go on long rides, and he would mm. tell me his history with camp. So that was a, those were very precious times. So Ken came to visit me when I was when I had moved to Seattle in 1990, and we chatted. We had a beer together and and talked. And then every once in a while, he would just send me an email, "Hi from Kenny." So in 2013, I got a wonderful job touring with the rock group Heart. Anne and Nancy Wilson for two and a half months. My job was to conduct a local gospel choir in each of the cities for the last three minutes of Stairway to Heaven. That was it. Okay. It was an easy job. <laughs> That's fantastic. And it was... <laughs> I, in my head, there was a gospel choir going, ooh, Barracuda. Yeah, but right, no, no. right, right. No, it came out of the tribute that the uh, Kennedy Center tribute mm. to Led Zeppelin. Anne and Nancy sang um, in a very popular YouTube clip now, uh, Stairway to Heaven. And as a, they rev- at the last moment, they revealed a gospel choir and they joined. So they decided, hey, that worked. Let's do it on tour. And they did it with uh, John Bonham, who was the drummer for sure. Led Zeppelin, uh, who had passed away many years earlier, uh, with his son, Jason. So it was the Jason Bonham Band and Hart, and two bands uh, traveling around the country. 
and playing Ravinia and playing, you know, big, big uh, outdoor venues. Well, I, we would get two weeks off every once in a while. And we could, they would fly us wherever we wanted mm. and fly us back to our next, the next place. So I thought, you know, I haven't been to Evanston for a while. So I spent a week in Evanston. And on the way to our gig at Ravinia, which was earlier than that, I contacted Kenny and said, let's get together for lunch. So we got together, and uh, he said, you know, there are a bunch of camp guys that it would be fun to have dinner with. So when you're in Evanston for that week, let's get together for dinner. So he got the boys of summer together Mm. without telling me anything about them. So I went to dinner um, with them, and they said, well, now that you're a rock star, you can afford to uh, come up to camp for a couple of days, (laughs) so why don't you come up with us next year? So I did, and I got here and saw Denny and Elliot and George Sachs, and George said, I want to talk to you. He said, I want you to come back to camp. We need you to be here with the music program needs a little boost. And I said, nah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so then the year next said, that was a part of your life. That yes, was a time. Right. Come on. That was over. Yeah. So the next year I did uh, I, I I came up again. And then the, we had a serious discussion and that's when they said, you know, why don't you come back for four weeks and do the Jubilee? do the 4th of July show, do a couple talent shows, um, and see what happens. And son of a gun. There we are. Um, And now they've convinced me to come back for a second year, so I'm, uh, it's as if I never left. Mm. You know, they're they're different kids, and they're also the same kids. Right. And there's the same everything. Everything's the same. And everything's different. But it's still a wonderful place and some place that I think about all the time now. Yeah. I took a couple weeks off. I came up for the first four weeks, did the Jubilee, and then went home to Seattle for two and a half weeks. And people got really tired of me talking about camp <laughs> during, the, during that time. Right. Everyone, everyone except Andy Ross. Right. <laughs> He's like, let's go, more. Right. Oh, yeah, Andy Ross... Uh, that was that was an odd thing. I ended up I teach kinder music for kids birth to seven. It's an international program and I have about a hundred kids in it. And Andy Ross's daughter was in my class. I had no idea of the Ojibwe connection. Mm. And we I knew um Andrea, his wife, because she would always bring um, Jordan, and then she had uh, a baby, another baby, and her parents brought Jordan while she was delivering her child, and we started talking. They were from Chicago. I ascertained that they were Jewish. They said that they talked about camp, some camp, and then it came that, Mm. indeed, we were talking about Ojibwa. 
And so I couldn't wait to talk to Andy. Sure. Yeah. He brought Jordan the next week, and we practically uh, took over the the lesson just talking about camp. And he had been uh, here many years after I, uh, but but uh, it was all the same, you know. And he talked, told to me about Bob Bohm and his son, and and we knew all these people. Um, so it was. It was a real boost. It sort of it got me interested in, got my blood moving about. Yeah, you know, toward Ojibwa, and it was great. I had not met Andy at all, and as I was on the uh, national tour this year, going around talking to people from camp and coming to see you, and suddenly it was like, oh, you should reach out to this guy, mm-hmm. and so. I came and knocked on his door. He forgot I was coming. <laughs> By the time you hear this, you'll probably have heard his his interview already. But uh, as soon as I opened the door, he's like, oh, yeah, Ojibwa, let's do this. And he yeah, got right. super excited. He went to his Ojibwa trunk and pulled out all of his stuff, <laughs> and away we went. I don't have an Ojibwa uh, <laughs> and, and he was talking about you. It was really, it was amazing to be on the other side of the country. And, and here's this Ojibwa connection of guys. Right, right, all right, right. Over there. So you spent this four weeks that you were at camp this year living in Cabin 14 with us? Yes, uh, I did. You were a resident of Cabin 14. I was a guest. Um, and no, not a not a counselor, no counselor responsibilities. No counselor we responsibilities. Just, I had my own little You had a room? Cubicle. And uh, tell me about that. I was a little... I wasn't really nervous about it, but I was. I wondered what it would be like. First of all, there were you know, 12, 16-year-old boys who had never heard of me. Right. And yet I was introduced as the legendary Lou Mager. (laughs) That's the way introductions go at camp. That's what I was taught. Right. If Al Schwartz introduced you, you probably were an Olympic speed skater of some sort or a national heavyweight champion. (laughs) And so I I pretty much stayed by myself. I had a lot of work to do. And uh, I would see them. You know, they would come in and they're like, hey, Lou, how are you doing? And I... I tried to learn some of their names and and like that, um, and then at one point, I was sitting in the cabin doing work, and they came in from an activity and plopped down. All twelve of them plopped down on the couches and said, "Okay, now we hear you're famous. Now, <laughs> why don't, why don't you tell us about your life?" Nice. So I did, and I got up to the tour with heart, thinking. They're not going to know who this is. Sure, of course. But they did. Hmm. And also, one of the counselors came out, um, Andre, came hmm. out and said, you toured with heart? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, I don't believe this. I don't believe it. I, we're, we're in the same. Boys, this guy is famous. <laughs> Ignoring the White House and all that right, stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's heart. Heart is the woo. one. <laughs> so we... we um, we became closer that that way, and oddly, they developed um, a symbol for me. Certainly, which you've seen, um, which is an M made by placing your hands over your head, but it's also a heart. Yes, and they didn't think of that. I don't think, but that was how I took it, also. And when I showed people back in Seattle about the symbol for Lou, they said, oh, it's a heart. Yeah. I said, no, it's an M. <laughs> so when, whenever I would get up now this, uh, during camp this year to make an announcement, I would hear, Lou, 
Lou from the boys in Kevin 14. And then everybody would look and they would all have their hands over their heads doing yeah. the, the symbol. Very touching. Yeah, those boys really loved having you in there. And and I too, I was worried in the beginning when we sort of set all the arrangements up. You know, I was like, you know, I don't think they're going to be rude or anything. No. But I don't know if they're going to like this older guy coming and living in the cabin they don't right. know. And they just love you. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. lovingly refer to themselves as the Mager Gang. Right. Um, and you don't know this, but you'll you'll get to see it eventually in their own Cabin 14 movie that they made. There's a few shout outs to Mager. And uh, they really, you know... They really loved having you in there and thought you were super cool. And, you know, that's what that symbol was all about. It was them trying to find their way to express that. Right. Well, they did choose, as when we burned the symbols, they chose an M. That's right. And so I told them that I would uh, give them a treat as a result. And then I thought, "Ah, what's it going to be? They have pizza all the time. They get to go to town all the time. I mean, so I got a bunch of M&Ms. Ah, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> so that's it. So you'll you're gonna be back next year, yep. and uh, we'll see what we can do next year. That's yeah. new and exciting. Uh, but looking back on things, that journey that you took, how would you say that your years here at Ojibwa, certainly those early years, how how did that affect your life? Well, it gave me a whole bunch of new friends, and it introduced me to a culture that I certainly didn't know anything about because I'm not Jewish. Right. Um, it uh, allowed me to see a part of the country and get to know this area of the country that is so incredibly beautiful. Um, I got to meet a real legend, Al Schwartz, mm. and be part of his uh, his years here. Yeah, and that was I. At one point in my life, I directed the San Francisco Boys Chorus, and they would have a camp every year. A three-week camp. Mm. And I found myself channeling Al all the time when I was directing that camp. Wow. Uh, there would And things would come out, and I would have no idea where they came from. And then I thought, wait, that's Al Schwartz. So in ways that you, you know, these, you, you never know how things are going to affect you or, or how it's going to affect later on mm-hmm. your life. And... That was um, that was definitely a big part of it. He was a big part of it. Legendary and such a visionary too. Yeah. Kenny and I were out the other night looking at the stars and seeing the crystal clear Big Dipper and the crystal clear Little Dipper. We were looking at the Milky Way. And Ken said, you know, this is what Al saw mm. in 19-whatever. And I'm sure that he had the same feeling that we did coming from Chicago, coming from a city. This is a beautiful, beautiful place that I can establish at, for children to have fun and to grow and be nurtured by older boys and um, men and women and and turn into better citizens as a result. I loved his the, the talks he gave to the staff. They were always entertaining. And I use I, as I said, I, I still use, you know now I, now I teach little tiny kids right 
And I do many of the things that he would do. I would take, do many of the attitudes, many of the facial expressions. The um, people tell me that I really relate to little kids, and that's because of Al. He he showed me the way. Awesome. The Ojibwa way. Yeah, you know? absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, did we forget anything? Wonderful. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure. Okay, that is it. Another one in the books. Lou Mager right here on the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast. Lots of fun. Uh, If you enjoyed the alma mater that you heard there mid-interview, have no fear. We have the original UMass fight song written by the original collaborators, or performed by the original collaborators, I should say. Uh, Just stay tuned after the end, and you'll hear that right here as well. Uh, As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJibbaHistory.org. Of course, you can always just swing by the website. I feel like you probably haven't checked out those plaques yet. And the holiday season's upon us. You're going to be coming home. Christmas break will be here or Hanukkah break or winter break from school, whatever it happens to be for you. And you're going to want to talk to your friends about how you won the week in 1969 and your name is on those tree plaques. So go check them out. You're going to dig them the most. Uh, I've decided I'm going to stop talking about the weather. I just got to grow up, suck it up, and understand that sometimes you got to walk through the snow if you want to have a cigar. the school.